Google is ditching Flock. Washington DC is suing Google, not over the Flock thing. An elementary school in Germany is switching from WhatsApp and a healthy sprinkling of updates to some previous stories. Welcome to Surveillance Report 73, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news. This report recaps some of the most notable events in the last week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. I am Henry from Techlore. We want to celebrate a big milestone today. This podcast marks one year of Henry and I hosting this podcast together. So, (laughs) (laughs) on that note, we'll go ahead and highlight our affiliate way to support us right now, which is cryptocurrency. If you've enjoyed this past year and you want to see another year and many, many more, you can go ahead and donate in Bitcoin or Monero to keep us going. Techlord accepts Bitcoin and Monero. The new oil accepts Bitcoin and Monero. We're also experimenting with some other popular cryptocurrencies like Ethereum and Litecoin. So if you're a crypto fan, that is a good way to support us and keep us going. Techlord is not experimenting. <laughs> I mean, if you find something that works, don't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, bro. Yeah, no. Um, Unless also, you're me and you hate yourself. Jeez. Also, thanks everyone for go ahead and checking out Nathan's stuff from last week. I think Nathan saw a huge influx of people. So good job, everyone. Thank you very much. It was appreciated. With that, we're going to jump into our highlight story this week, which is Google dropping Flock. But they're not really dropping it. They're just rebranding it as topics. Quick recap of Flock for those who are new or maybe don't remember. Flock is the federated learning of cohorts or some crap like that. And it's basically Google, I believe next year, is going to ditch support for third-party cookies. So they're trying to find a new system for advertising. Coincidentally, one that they seem to be in total control of. So Flock was basically a proposed system that would watch your browsing history and then categorize you into different topics for advertising, like running or music or tech, anything like that. After a lot of pushback over privacy concerns, Google has replaced Flock with Topics, which is basically the same thing. Brave has noted only two changes. Number one, Flock would broadcast all of your interest to every site you visited. Topics now only broadcast to the site if it was present on the site you came from. For example, people like Facebook who have their fingers everywhere, pretty much every site you go to is still going to be broadcasting everything because everybody's got Facebook. Number two, topics will add small bits of random data to help throw off fingerprinting, but it's probably not going to be enough. And also Chrome does a lot of fingerprinting on its own. So Chrome is the only major browser nowadays that doesn't support any kind of native anti-tracking, anti-fingerprinting, whatever, which is kind of ironic because you think that Google could put that into the browser, but still keep it off for themselves. Anyways, I digress. That's Flock. That's what they're trying to do, Nathan. Fair. You're right. I only had two cups of coffee today. I need more. So anyways, just a little more information about topics. They can collect a total of five topics per browser, and those five rotate based on the last three weeks of browsing. When you visit a website, it will share three topics randomly chosen from those top five. This is a slight improvement because Flock shared IDs while topics will share topics, as we said. And Google is excluding, quote unquote, potentially sensitive categories like race or sexual orientation. The reason I put those in air quotes is because I would argue that there's other things that are still sensitive besides that. The test run will feature only 300 topics, but Google has said that they might expand that into the thousands. And it learns based on a quote unquote lightweight machine learning algorithm in the browser. So even if they somehow give you an option to turn this off, it's still going to be in your browser. Cough, cough, get rid of Chrome. That's kind of what's the big takeaway from this as well is the reason why Google's even able to try to attempt this is because Chrome still has something like over 70% of the browser market share. So even if no other browser on the market 
commits to using Flock, which by the way, none of the others are committing to, user, to using Flock. Firefox is opposed to it, Safari is opposed to it, Edge is opposed to it. No one wants to support Flock, only Google. Even though they're saying no, this is still a very successful decision for Google because so many people use Chrome. So that's why we still encourage people, download Chromium instead of Chrome. Get to Brave instead of Chrome. Move to Firefox. Like any browser outside of Chrome is probably going to be a step in the right direction with the exception of like Opera. Quick note on that. I just learned today that LibreWolf has an unofficial plugin that'll let you know when there's an update ready. I like LibreWolf, but I hate the fact that it doesn't auto update. But now on Windows, you can download a plugin that'll let you know like, hey, there's a new version. Go ahead and update. With that, we're going to move into our data breaches section. We're going to start with Segway, who was hit by a mage cart attack hiding in the Favicon, which is very clever. Details are very scant. I think this just happened, so they haven't really released a lot of information yet. The article says that it probably took place starting on January 6th. The skimmer, again, was hidden in the favicon so it would be harder to detect than usual normally you could simply look at the source code but since it was hidden in the image they had to use like a i think they said a hexadecimal editor to see it there was also a javascript file called copyright involved they didn't really go into detail in that but i'm assuming the name was designed to throw you off and you know oh why would i look at that although my flag says why do i need a javascript file for the copyright the exact numbers of how many people were affected or the types of data have not been disclosed, but it is safe to say that all payment data was probably compromised. Our second and final data breach, IMED has agreed to a $600,000 settlement over a 2020 data breach. This exposed over 2 million customers around June 24th, 2020. This included their names, mailing addresses, full or partial social security numbers, date of births, driver's licenses, healthcare IDs, and pretty much all of their treatment information and diagnoses and things like that. An investigation concluded that the initially accessed account was not using multi-factor authentication. Around 2,000 phishing emails were sent to clients in July, and $600,000 is the settlement. Up next, we're gonna move over into companies. Apple is now fixing that known Safari fingerprinting bug that allows websites to track your browsing history. Last week, we talked about this story. It was through IndexedDB and Apple pushed out an update to fix it. They're also adding a couple updates to fix some zero days and other vulnerabilities. Auto updates, use them. Up next, we got a few stories from Facebook. We're gonna start off with WhatsApp kicking off its first ever US marketing push. The article says Meta is kicking off the first ever US marketing push for WhatsApp, focusing on the privacy offered by the app's encryption. We do not endorse WhatsApp around here, but the reason we're sharing this is to let you, the viewer, know. Be aware of this. Educate the people around you on why WhatsApp sucks and what the better options are, because it's possible that some of your friends and family are going to see these ads and start asking you about these kinds of things. So just have that on your radar and let your friends and family know like, hey, by the way, if you see any ads for uh, WhatsApp, don't listen to them, they're terrible. If you're curious, I'll let you know what a real private messenger is. On the topic of WhatsApp, WhatsApp has until the end of February to clarify policy changes. To quote the article, WhatsApp has been given until the end of February to explain changes to its privacy policy and whether this complies with EU consumer protection laws after complaints from consumer groups. That's pretty much it. We will keep you updated as we learn more. And finally, a little bit of good news. Messenger's end-to-end -end encrypted calls and chats are now available to everyone. Once again, we do not endorse the use of Messenger. However, you know there are always those people that are like, well, I'm gonna use Facebook anyways, so at least they can get a little bit of protection. The article says there are two ways Messenger users can opt into the secure chats, either with vanish mode, which is where you swipe up on an existing chat to enter one where messages automatically disappear when the window is closed, or the original version that was introduced in 2016 as Secret conversations. You can turn that on by toggling the lock icon when you start a new chat. I'm going to assume that vanishing mode is like this, but I can speak from experience when I used to be 
a Facebook user. Secret Conversations is only available on mobile. Gee, I wonder why that is. Vanish mode probably is too. Just let people know if for some reason they refuse to take Messenger off their phone, at least use secret chats. Up next, a US master fans company has challenged BC privacy watchdog order. So this is a story update about Clearview AI that was ordered to stop collecting data on some Canadians. They are fighting the order on the grounds that the data they are collecting should be considered public. Not a fan of this, though Clearview AI has been taking a lot of L's lately, like the Australia one, so hopefully uh, they will not be granted. All the L's, all the L's. <laughs> all, all the L's. Up next, Verizon's track phone customers are complaining of attackers stealing their phone numbers. This is just as it sounds. Some customers had their phone numbers ported over during the holidays, and they were, quote, recently made aware of bad actors gaining access to a limited number of accounts, and in some cases, fraudulently transferring or porting out mobile telephone numbers to other carriers. In some cases, customers said they discovered their lines had been moved without their permission to Metro, which is a T-Mobile owned company. So a T-Mobile spokesperson said the company investigated and found no fraud or data breach of any sort on its side. So it is a Verizon slash track phone issue. The company added that such unauthorized transfers are unfortunately an industry-wide issue, which is kind of a cop-out because yes, it's an industry-wide issue, but it's also a fixable industry-wide issue that's just not being really taken seriously. The moral, call your provider, see how to lock your number from being ported and see what additional security options they have. Use VOIP if possible, if that's something that fits inside your threat model, which is a virtual number. And also don't use SMS 2FA uh, if you can avoid it at all costs. I also encourage having multiple phone numbers that you use for different things to help spread yourself out a little bit. The next story is an update to ID.me, which was our highlight story from last week. So the ID.me CEO has backtracked on claims that the company doesn't use powerful facial recognition technology. The CEO clarified this week, quote, our one-to-one -one face match is comparable to taking a selfie to unlock a smartphone. ID.me does not use one too many facial recognition one too many facial recognition. So what he's trying to say is he's claiming part of the process is you have to upload an ID, like a scan of your driver's license, and then you also have to take a selfie and upload that. And so what he's saying is we're comparing those two images to each other. We're not scanning our database to compare you to everyone in our database. Got it, that makes more sense. He also said later, one too many verification is used once during enrollment and is not tied to identity verification. It does not block legitimate users from verifying their identity, nor is it used for any other purpose than to prevent identity theft. It's unclear what's going on or how it's used. And needless to say, there's a lot of privacy concerns with any form of facial recognition and more transparency over this is definitely a must. Personally, I think it's kind of wild that something like ID.me, which is already implementing an unregulated technology that we don't know the consequences for, isn't doing something transparently in open source. Not to mention the fact that it's used in public services. We just talked about how they're being used for the IRS, a lot of government websites, a lot of other companies rely on ID.me. So the fact that there's so little regulation over something that's being used for literally government-related software for the public is kind of ridiculous. Nate here with a quick breaking update to this story. Right after we finished recording, an article was published by Bloomberg, which says that the Treasury Department is actually considering dropping ID.me over privacy concerns. Now, the Treasury Department didn't actually say this was over privacy concerns, but they did say that they are looking into alternatives. A spokeswoman for the IRS said the IRS is consistently looking for ways to make the filing process more secure. 
They also go on to say that basically the reason they haven't created their own in-house system is because they're underfunded. So they turn to a third-party company like ID.me. Now, here's something really interesting. In all the weeks we've been covering this story, we did not know that ID.me has actually not been using their own technology. They have been employing third-party companies. For example, they use vendors Paravision and iProve for the actual one-to-one -one verification process. And lo and behold, for some reason, I feel like I shouldn't be surprised by this, the one-to-many bit that we were just talking about is run by Amazon's recognition service. The one that Amazon has barred US law enforcement for using and has been proven repeatedly to be considerably racist. It works way better on white people than on people of color. As far as justifying their use of ID.me, the IRS did say that it is compliant with the National Institute of Standards and Technology, but I'm pretty sure those are the same ones who also say that an eight character password is totally acceptable, or maybe it's 12, I don't know. Either way, it's way too low. So I'm not sure that's exactly proving your case. But anyways, this update just came out. Wanted to make sure we threw this in before we pushed out this report to you guys. On to the next story now. Life360 says it will stop selling precise location data. Henry covered this story a while back. There is an app, they call themselves a family safety app called Life360. They announced on Wednesday that they would stop selling precise location data, which would cut off a multi-billion dollar location data industry's largest source, or one of their largest sources. The decision comes after the markup revealed that Life360 was supplying up to a dozen data brokers with the whereabouts of millions of its users. The founder, Chris Hulls, announced that they will phase out all of their location data deals except with Allstate's Arity, Arity program. The app, which boasts more than 35 million users worldwide, will still be selling location data to the firm Placer.ai, but in aggregate rather than raw precise form. Just for context, a former engineer at Xmode, which is another location data company, told the markup that Life360's location data was one of the most valuable on the market because of how precise and vast it was. They would provide location data to customers through server-to-server -server transfers and provide the data as frequently as every 20 minutes. The CEO Hulls, he said that selling aggregate location data would mean reducing business risk for the company. Translation, I don't give a crap about privacy, I just don't want to get sued. I bet he wouldn't be happy if somebody stuck an AirTag on his car. In 2020, location data sales made up nearly 20% of their revenue, netting the company $16 million, according to their financial records. It made an additional $6 million through its deal with Arity. And then Hulls said that Life360 doesn't share users' private information with insurers in a way that could affect insurance rates. As longtime listeners know, aggregate data can be de-aggregated and de-anonymized, so this is, it is an improvement, but I mean, it's, it's more performative than anything else. And our last company story this week, this one is especially upsetting and unfortunately sounds very familiar. We may have covered something like this before. Suicide Hotline shares data with for-profit spinoff. Title pretty much says it all. There's a company called the Crisis Text Line, and they are one of the world's most prominent mental health support lines. A, quote, tech-driven nonprofit that uses big data and artificial intelligence to help people cope with traumas, such as self-harm, emotional abuse, and thoughts of suicide. But the data the charity collects from its online text conversations does not end there. The organization's for-profit spinoff uses that information to create and market customer service software. As usual, there's that A word. They claim the data is anonymized, but again, long-time listeners know, there is no such thing. Data can be de-anonymized. And even if it's not de-anonymized, like that's just so scummy, man. Are there better ways to train and create customer service software? Hopefully this article will shame these guys into stopping this. And now we're gonna migrate into the research of the week and we only have one story. Dundee researchers are using AI hand recognition to catch 
Pedophiles. I was going to give this to Nate, but I was like, Nate accused me last week of giving him all the controversial ones, <laughs> so I guess I gotta prove him wrong. Pretty much, people are able to look at hands and features, like blood vessels and movements, to identify who the hand belongs to. Researchers at the University of Dundee and Lancaster University are creating an AI to automate that process of pretty much being able to identify people just based on things like blood vessels. This article, it's kind of unclear. What they're trying to do is ask volunteers to submit photos of their hands via the project's official app to help train the AI. Submissions are, quote, anonymous. Nate's already mentioned a couple times, right? I mean, guys, come on, common sense. They're trying to identify people using AI, but the submissions are anonymous. Come on, it can't get any funnier than that. The whole point of the program is to eventually identify people. It will not be shared and it will be destroyed once the project concludes. I might believe that it's destroyed, but the submission itself might be anonymous. It might not be tied to your name, but if the goal is to actually identify users, de-anonymizing that data isn't terribly difficult. My main question about this is, this 100% might be completely used and done to catch pedophiles, but I am curious. A lot of research and a lot of things that are done in private labs have very noble beginnings and are eventually repurposed for other things. So I guess my big question is, it could start as a catch pedophile tool and it could definitely migrate to be other forms of surveillance that we should keep an eye on. With that, we're going to jump into politics and we're going to start off with another big story that made the rounds this week. Washington, D.C.'s attorney general is suing Google for, quote, deceiving users and invading their privacy. D.C. AG Carl Racine, Racine, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that name, claims that Google, quote, has violated the Consumer Protection Procedures Act in the state, specifically about location tracking. Essentially, Racine believes that while Google says its users can opt out of having their whereabouts identified, such tracking remains in place. The states of Texas, Washington, and Indiana are actually filing very similar lawsuits. Google has responded, quote, the attorneys general are bringing a case based on inaccurate claims and outdated assertions about our settings. We have always built privacy features into our products and provided robust controls for location data. We will vigorously defend ourselves and set the record straight. I'm sure you will. Up next, I read, not me, but the person who wrote the article, I read the federal government's zero trust memo, so you don't have to. Quote, the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB, released a memo, moving the U.S. government towards zero trust cybersecurity principles. This memo is a reaction to 2020's SolarWinds incident. Remember that? I haven't heard that name in a while. That was like a whole six-month ordeal. And the 2021 Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. Another, woof throwback. Man, the pandemic like was already a thing then. That, it's crazy. Uh, time flies. They've advised the federal government on what steps each agency should take to prevent its cybersecurity and those incidents from happening again. The memo suggests mandatory 2FA via hardware keys only, no apps or SMS, and at least one device level signal alongside identity information. In other words, trusted authorized devices that they know belong to certain individuals. So the password requirements are being phased out. We think that they should just use a password manager and 2FA and strong passwords, as well as VPNs are being phased out as well. So those two things are being phased out as a recommendation for avoiding these incidents, which kind of makes sense given what they're trying to protect against, except the password requirements a little interesting, but they also mandate HTTPS and DNS encryption and possibly encrypted email. Our next story moves over to Europe, where Facebook and Google are facing tighter ad tracking controls. I'm going to quote the article. The agreement included a ban on targeting ads to minors and using so-called dark patterns where platforms push people to consent to being tracked online. It also allows people to seek compensation if platforms continue to promote content that they know harms people. 
unquote. Just for those who don't know, dark patterns are, you've definitely seen them. You go to a website and the banner pops up that's like, we use cookies. And there's one big bright button that says, accept all cookies. And then there's a tiny little text only link that says, manage your cookie options. And then it takes you through three different menus where you have to opt out of all the non-essential cookies. That's a dark pattern. And that is just one of many. So these rules could go into effect as early as 2023. Basically, now there have to be negotiations with the EU member states. So that might slow it down. Up next, the EU is trying to create a pan-European cyber incident coordination framework. Big name, simple concept. So the ESRB is proposing a new systematic cyber incident coordination framework that would allow EU relevant authorities to coordinate better when responding to major cross-border cyber incidents that impact the union's financial sector. Quote, this initiative comes after multiple incidents resulting in networks belonging to the EU organizations being breached last year. So it's essentially just um, a systematic way to try to address those concerns. Next up in England, the national health system is being criticized over using a trust that films mental health patients in their bedrooms. They're using a company called Oxivision, who makes cameras that continuously record mental health patients even in their bedrooms. This is obviously being cited as a human rights violation. The system can also monitor patient pulse and breath rate. Video is kept for a maximum of 72 hours, and staff are only allowed to view video for 10 to 15 seconds at a time during a check-in or while responding to an incident. I guess those are some pretty decent controls. But at the same time, they're being accused of really playing down how the system works and making it sound a lot less invasive and a lot less harmful. Again, that's one of those things where I understand if people are having mental health issues, you want to keep an eye on them and their safety, but this is just very unsettling. And I think they need to be a little bit more transparent and have some better oversight over if and how this system is used. And the final political story of the week, the Tor project has appealed the Russian court's decision to block access to Tor. So for those who don't remember, Russia has recently been trying to block Tor and the Tor project is appealing it. So we'll keep updates on that and make sure to subscribe to the surveillance report to find out what happens. Coming soon to a theater near you. With that, we will go into our free and open source software news and we're gonna start in Germany where an elementary school has adopted Fluffy Chat. Sort of. They modified Fluffy Chat. So they took Fluffy Chat and forked it. Basically, they used to be using WhatsApp, like a lot of schools do. And from the very beginning, they're like, WhatsApp sucks. We know this. We want to move to something better. So after a lot of research, they forked Fluffy Chat. They have their own unfederated matrix home server located in the school building. As far as the fork and the things that they did differently for Fluffy Chat, they made login user-friendly. The school will create the accounts, which is pretty common in schools, and then they will create QR codes. So the kids can just scan this QR code that automatically logs them in. They are also issued a pin for two-factor, and this way they can like log out and go use their own personal accounts when they're not in school hours. They also, get this, disabled user directories for student privacy, so you can't see who else is in the room. Germany's killing it. Good job, guys. I'm so jealous. Next story. Definitely want to make sure we get this right. Last year, in May of 2021, Proton was issued a legal order. Lithuania contacted Switzerland, who issued the order, so everything went through the proper channels, to provide user data on an account that had been recently created and used to send a false bomb threat. This incident happened on May 23rd. According to Proton's response, the account was created on May 14th. The account was last accessed on May 25th. The authentication logs for the account were not activated. 
No physical address or identity information was registered or linked to the account. The account was free, therefore no payment information was recorded. The content of the emails and the mailbox were fully end-to-end -end encrypted, so they could not be viewed by ProtonMail. The contacts, notes, and images were also end-to-end -end encrypted and could not be viewed by ProtonMail. No instant message information was ever recorded. That was the story I'll hand it off to Nate now. Okay, so there's a few takeaways worth noting here. First of all, it's unclear when this information was subpoenaed, but based on Proton's public response, which is linked in the article, it happened sometime between May 25th and May 28th. So here's kind of what we can take away from that. On the plus side, Proton once again confirms that the contents, contacts, notes, and images are zero knowledge. Your mailbox is safe. And if you really think Proton is lying to the authorities, to protect their $10 a month users, you have no idea how the world actually works. I hate to be mean, but it's true. By the way, this is how every other story of ProtonMail has been. That French activist, that was a big thing that we did cover. They never handed over actual promised information that was supposed to be safe, which is your emails, the contacts, the notes, the images, which are all covered with zero knowledge encryption. But Nathan will cover what was actually taken care of. Sorry, my cat meowed when I kicked him off the desk. He was so mad. Okay, so. Here's the negative drawbacks of Proton. Proton stores the information you sign up for for at least 11 to 14 days. That was why we listed the dates there specifically. They do admit that they keep information at sign up for a limited amount of time, but they don't specify how long that is. And now we know it's at least two weeks. What we can infer from this, Proton is not lying when they say that it's zero knowledge, but you should number one, not do anything illegal. We are never endorsing illegal activity here. And number two, be aware of their practices for sensitive stuff. Let's say instead of sending a bomb threat, this person was trying to be a whistleblower and they were trying to contact journalists. They need to know this kind of stuff. Proton's going to keep my stuff for at least two weeks. Let me make the email and then log into it a month later, maybe something like that. And number three, of course, use a VPN. I believe the IP address was one of the things that ratted this person out, if I remember correctly. Again, companies will comply with legal orders and we fully expect them to. It's on you to protect yourself. I think it, Henry said it last week. No company is going to break the law for you. You got to protect yourself. And also, this isn't a proton mail thing. Tudonota went through a similar thing in Germany. Pretty much any email provider, it's what I hate. People are like proton mail. You can't trust proton mail. You can't trust any central email provider. These are central companies that have to obey laws. So unless you're self-hosting your own email, which exposes its own security concerns if you don't do it properly, you just have to understand the limitations of these private slash secure email providers. It's not that complicated to grasp, but we still see all these YouTube videos and articles come out saying ProtonMail isn't trusted, ProtonMail is CIA honeypot, based on just complete nonsense without understanding what the tool actually offers people. I just got to point out, we would look pretty stupid if ProtonMail does turn out to be a honeypot. True. And you know what? That goes with a lot of things. But that's the hard thing about taking the fact-based approach with things is that you can disprove someone when they're taking a fact-based approach, but you can't disprove someone when they're making up nonsense. For the record, if undeniable proof ever does come out that Proton's a honeypot, I think we'll be the first ones to admit it. That'll be the headline story. <laughs> that's the thing. We have nothing to gain. Yes, we have a ProtonMail affiliate link that we let people optionally use, but people think that we're somehow in with Proton. Guys, we don't care. We just want you to be using the tools that you actually love and respect. That's big for us too. I use ProtonMail for the business and my personal life. If something happens to ProtonMail, I want to know about it because I'm also dependent on this service as well as countless other people in the privacy community. And we're here for you guys. This applies to everything. People are like signals compromised because they require a phone number. And it's like, let's just ignore literally every freaking legal request that's been sent to signal that only came back with the information signal promised to give them. 
All right, next up, real quick, just two little updates. Firefox 96.0.3 is out. It fixes an issue that allowed unexpected data to be submitted in some of the search telemetry, so that is good. And also Calyx OS 12, Android 12, is out. So that is very exciting. It's now in the public channel. If you're on Calyx, you should already be able to get the download directly on your phone. Now we're gonna move over into the Misfits section and we're gonna start with an Android malware. The Android malware Brada Brada wipes your device after stealing your data. Not, not good, not good. So this was first spotted by Kaspersky in 2019 and it mainly targeted Brazilian users to steal their banking credentials. Oh, this is sounding familiar. With this new evolution, it now targets users in UK, Poland, Italy, Spain, China, and Latin America and can factory reset your device. So again, this stuff, evolves. So even if it's not being conducted by the same original group, malware does evolve, malware gets better, malware gets stronger, and malware can learn how to do new things. Takeaway here, keep listening to surveillance support. We actually have talked about this story in the past, I'm fairly certain. We keep updates on things. This is a great place to keep updated on what's going on in the world. And our final story is just another example of malware evolving. There is a new UEFI bootkit called Moonbounce, and it cannot be removed by replacing the hard drive. So normally when you have a rootkit like this, it still exists on the hard drive. It's just buried very deep in the software to the point where it's incredibly difficult to remove. And a, I guess you could say like a last resort is to just pull out the hard drive and stick a new one in there and start over. This new one, Moonbounce, actually embeds itself on the motherboard, which makes it, like I said, nearly impossible to remove. You have to remove the whole motherboard. You basically have to get a whole new computer. I mean, not literally, but this one was also discovered by Kaspersky and is believed to be part of China's APT41 state-sponsored hacking group. Fortunately, us run-of-the-mill users probably do not have to worry about this guy, but again, malware is evolving. It is getting better. It is getting more complicated, so be aware of that. And that was all of our news this week. We updated you guys on Tor being blocked in Russia, and hopefully they will win that appeal. We'll keep you updated on DC suing Google. We'll keep you updated on any more information we get from ID.me or Life360, or anything. As always, anything we hear, we will keep you guys updated on because that is our goal here, is to keep you guys informed so you know what's going on in the privacy world. Once again, you can support us via cryptocurrency. We both accept Bitcoin and Monero. Monero is preferred. Monero is love. Monero is life. Make sure you guys check that out as a good way to keep us going. We want to thank you all for listening to Surveillance Report, and we are happy to know that you are trying to stay safe out there. The final thing we want to ask of you, share the podcast around. Make sure you are subscribed and definitely give us a rating if you're listening on a platform where that's an option. We want privacy to reach as many people as possible, and you can help us do that. Especially this week, we got the story about Facebook adding encryption. So send that to one of your family members that uses Facebook and maybe they'll start listening. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next week.